Hi there, my name is Michael Lawler, naturopath and acupuncturist, and this is the We Thrive podcast, where we discuss the latest health topics and how we can take control of our own health and well-being, because we believe that when you take control of your own health, you can live well, live happily, and live long. Well, hello guys, today I'm going to talk about probiotics and prebiotics and why we need them. Now, we've all heard now of the bacteria that live inside us and mostly in our gut or our digestive system. And it runs from the mouth right down to the other end, all the way through our gastrointestinal tract. Now, it's known by by different names, namely the microbiome or the microbiota or our gut bacteria and so on. And why is there such a plethora of information about this? over the past decade or so. Well, up until recently, medical science and medicine in general didn't pay too much attention to this microbiome or to the necessity to keep it in a healthy state. For every cell in the human body, there's roughly nine imposter cells, if you want, so nine microbiota cells along for the ride. There's a hundred trillion in your gut, your skin, is also crawling with them. You have more on your fingertip than 12 times the population of Ireland. Imagine that. We have a massive amount of of microbes in our bodies. And over a lifetime, we have hosted the equivalent of roughly the weight of five elephants. Now, these anecdotes, they come from one of many books that have been written um, recently on this topic. Now, this is there's this fantastic book I'm reading at the minute. It's called 10% Human. And essentially, that's what it means. When you measure the amount of cells in our body against the amount of bacterial cells, they outnumber us 90% to 10%. So we really only are 10% human. Now, if you take a deep breath in and out, you probably thought that you were breathing in that lovely, 100% life-giving oxygen. Well, actually, that's not the case because 80% of the air that we breathe in is nitrogen. And nitrogen is the most abundant element in the atmosphere. And we breathe it in, and then it just goes back out again. It doesn't do very much for us. And it's pretty useless to us unless it is converted to ammonia. And guess what? It's our microbes that do this for us. And the funny thing is, if they didn't, well, we would die. Amazing. The microbes in our system break down 10% of the food that we eat. They extract vitamins from our food, like B2, B12, folic acid. Humans produce 20 digestive enzymes, which is not too bad in in, in the world of animals, okay? But bacteria in our bodies produce 10,000 and outside of our bodies. They do so much for us that we really, really couldn't exist without them. Now, we thought in the past that our microbes didn't matter, okay, and that we could eradicate them at all costs, at will, with hygiene and deep cleaning, etc. Okay, and now it's been widely accepted that this was a very misguided practice because we need them in order for the normal functioning of our body systems, of a lot of our body systems. We've evolved with them, and then with us. And now we're like yin and yang. 
one needs the other and one can't exist without the other. So we have bacteria, we have viruses, we have parasites, and we have protozoa. And protozoa are single-celled organisms. Now, all of these are hugely beneficial to us, but they can also be harmful. So we need to keep the balance right. So that means having more good bacteria in our guts than harmful ones for optimal health. Now, a lot of uh, people will ask, well, what depletes my microbiome? What, what, what makes it uh, go out of balance into uh, what we would call dysbiosis, which means a more a prevalence of the bad bacteria than the good bacteria? Well, research has shown that those excessive hygiene practices I just spoke about there have a huge impact on our microbiome. So we're cleaning everything to the nth degree in our homes and at work and hospitals and everywhere else to the point that we're not, not in contact with those everyday bacteria anymore. And then we have the lack of contact with the soil, with the ground, the earth. We don't seem to be as, as uh, I guess, as uh, in contact with nature as we used to be. And we're getting our hands into the dirt. That's where we picked up the bacteria in the first place as we evolved. But with those, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that all of us are like this. I mean, there are professions and there are jobs where people are working with the soil all the time. But for the most part, the general population don't have the contact with the soil that they used to have. So we're not picking up that bacteria that passes and finally ends up on our skin and in our gut. And then we have cesarean section births. Cesarean section births are a problem when it comes to the microbiome. And in research, this is borne out because you get your microbiome established when you pass through the vaginal canal. That's where you pick up your bacteria. But when you are born from a cesarean birth, you're taken straight out of the abdomen of your mother and you don't get a chance to pass through this birth canal. Therefore, you're not picking up the bacteria. Now, there's a current practice in Europe, and I think it might be coming into Ireland and England, where the C-section babies are now swabbed with secretions from the birth canal to help them to establish this microbiome because we know how important it is. So C-section births can have an impact. And also breastfeeding. I think in Ireland and England, we have the lowest uptake of breastfeeding in the whole of Europe. And this is a problem because a lot of the bacteria are transferred from your mother to you um, during breastfeeding. So also, now, and lastly, but not leastly, we have antibiotics. Now, antibiotics are a wonder medication, there's no doubt, okay? Um, they've been used for many conditions which we couldn't take control of over the centuries, and they've gotten rid of a lot of really uh, deadly and dangerous and fatal, I guess, infectious diseases. A true wonder medication, but the problem is, I guess, mainstream medicine has thought they could just use them for everything. They were so good, we could just keep using them and there wouldn't be a, a downside. Well, unfortunately now we are, we're seeing the downside because they have been overused. And more often than not, they're prescribed as a just-in-case measure. And a just-in-case measure means that when you go, I guess, and you have a flu or a virus and you go to a GP, you'll be given a prob... Uh, well, you'll be given a... Um, you'll be given an antibiotic medication that will help you uh, just in case there's a bacterial infection, even though it's a virus. So these practices are beginning to become uh, frowned upon in the mainstream medical community. And also, we haven't kept any antibiotics. We've used them all. All of the strains that we had, we've, we have used. Um, 
I remember sitting at a lecture with uh, one of the main guys from the College of Surgeons many years ago, and he was and he had predicted this. He said, "Listen, we are in for uh, for a major problem here because we haven't kept any antibiotics, uh, you know, safe. One locked away in a in a, in a very very safe place that can be used when we get a superbug." And the problem is now we have superbugs. So these are antibiotic resistant um, strains of bacteria that are not that antibiotics can't take care of, take uh, take care of. Uh, two in ten antibiotic prescriptions issued by GPs may be inappropriate, according to research. Now, antibiotic resistance, it's a growing public health concern. And efforts to reduce the inappropriate antibiotic prescribing are really urgently needed. And we see it now, um, I, I guess on the Irish uh, sphere, we see that GPs are being told by um, the authorities in Europe to ease off on the prescribing of antibiotics. And it's the same in England and in Europe where it was happening organically anyway. We seem to be always late to the table in Ireland with these kind of things. Now, antibiotics, they're, they're in the meat that we eat, okay? Animals that are bred for human consumption are fed antibiotics every single day of their lives so that when they show up on our plates, they still contain traces and sometimes a lot of traces of the original antibiotic. And we eat them and then they establish themselves in our gut, which leads to antibiotic-resistant bacterial colonies in our gut, which causes a major problem with our microbiome. Oh, just finally to say that, that this practice of indiscriminate prescribing has either directly or indirectly led to the creation of MRSA, which is the superbook that we can't get rid of. Okay, and they're resistant to most antibiotics, almost all of them, and they're going to be a major global health issue over the coming decades. So watch the antibiotic use, guys. Um, only use it when it's, when, it's, when it's absolutely necessary and don't take it as a just-in-case um, uh, measure. Now, what conditions, um, what medical conditions can be linked to a poor microbiome? I mean, we've all heard about the gut-brain axis and the, uh, all of those kind of things, but what, there's mood, anxiety, and depression heavily linked with the poor microbiome as is brain fog and forgetfulness. Asthma has a huge link, and so, so does es, uh, eczema. And then we have the gastroenteral reflux diseases, like heartburn and all that kind of stuff, all linked to a poor microbiome. And then those compulsive disorders, like obsessive-compulsive disorder, who would have imagined that that could have a root, and in research has been shown to come from a poor microbiome, as has ADD and ADHD in some studies. Bloating, constipation, irritable bowel system, food allergies and intolerances. So some of the really bad food allergies has been shown in research to come from poor microbiomes. Joint pain. Now who'd have thought joint pain can be a result of your microbiome? And you may not have any digestive symptoms at all, but just joint pain, and it could be caused from your poor microbiome in your gut. So imagine all that money that you're spending on acupuncturists and osteopaths and physiotherapy and then pain-killing medication maybe could be just uh, treated from looking after your gut. Then we have fatigue, insomnia, um, autoimmune disorders, where the body's immune system attacks the cells of its own body. I mean, it seems that we've swapped those 19th and 20th century infectious diseases for this 21st century phenomenon of autoimmune conditions. And we're getting another autoimmune condition every year or two. 
And then we have the phenomenon, which is the leaky gut syndrome and its relationship to the autoimmune conditions. Now, leaky gut means, essentially, you have your, uh, your small intestine wall and your large intestine wall. And in a normal, fully functioning microbiome, these, um, these, the lumens, as they're called, their junctions are really tight. And that system is patrolled really well by the immune system, okay, and by the bacteria. But what happens is, when we have a dysbiosis, when we have more bad bacteria than we have good bacteria, those junctions begin to get a little weaker and looser. And what happens then is, food particles cross from the intestines into the bloodstream, which shouldn't be there in the first place, like small proteins. And what happens is, the body has to respond by inflaming the gut. Okay, now, and inflammation can start in the gut, but it can end up anywhere in the body, okay, which can be a cause of the joint pain that we just uh, explained. So um, there's a huge problem with leaky gut syndrome in a lot of people. And a lot of research is showing that this is leading to a lot of these autoimmune conditions that we see only recently over the past decade or so. So why do we need probiotics and what do they do in the body? Well, we know why we need them. It's going to help with those conditions. But what do they do? So probiotics are alive bacteria and they're yeasts that you take in in your diet. And some, well, where do we get probiotics? Well, we have probiotics in yogurt. Now, I mean, I don't mean commercial yogurts. I don't mean those commercial brands that you see in most of the supermarkets. I mean more of the artisan handmade yogurts and even, I, I suppose, even homemade, homemade yogurts. And then we have kefir, which is a bacteria yeast formulation, which is fantastic probiotic. And it has all the different strains that you need, all the different bacterial strains. Kombucha is the same thing. It's a fermented tea. Sauerkraut, we have pickles. Miso, which is a fermented soybean. Tempeh, uh, which is Japanese. Kimchi, Japanese again. And then sourdough bread. And then there are some cheeses that contain probiotics. And then always, always we have the supplement variety, of which there are some very good products. But always go for the live variety. And these are the ones that you need to keep in the fridge. Now, at We Thrive, we recommend getting all of your, your nutritional needs from your food, from whole foods. But I guess, you know, with busy lifestyles and where this is not possible, then a good quality probiotic supplement can be beneficial. Now, there are two ways to get more good bacteria into your gut. So the fermented foods and the dietary supplements that we said. So fermented foods are the most natural source. And as we said before, probiotic supplements, are, as said before, are an option, but only in the short term. The foods we can take daily. The probiotic supplements, we should really only be on a course as prescribed by a, uh, by a health um, professional. So a big question now remains, how many probiotic foods do you need? And, you know, that's not easy to answer. And then there's also the question of the differing microbiomes in each individual. I mean, your microbiome is different than mine, and mine is different from my wife's, and my wife's are different from my kids. It's like the iris of an eye. There's not one the same. And it's like your fingerprints. There isn't one the same. And it's the very, very same with our bacterial colonies in our gut. Now, having said that, there are certain parameters that we all fall into as individuals. There are certain groups of people that will have certain strains of bacteria that other people's won't have but i guess the individual levels of them are different for the individual now there's no recommended daily intake for probiotics so there's no way really to know exactly which fermented foods or what quantity is the best so therefore i guess the general guideline is just add as many fermented foods 
to your daily diet as possible. And why fermented foods? Well, fermenting is one of the oldest techniques for food preservation. Mankind has been fermenting food and drinks like beer and wine for centuries. Um, foods that are fermented go through a process of lacto-fermentation in which natural bacteria feed on sugar and starch in the food and this creates lactic acid. This process creates an environment that preserves the food and promotes beneficial enzymes like B vitamins, omega-3 fatty acids, as well as various species of good bacteria. I guess another way to look at fermentation is that it takes one type of food and it, transform it, it transforms it into another kind. So for instance, cabbage becomes sauerkraut, cucumbers become pickles, soybeans turn into miso, and milk can be made into yogurt and cheeses and sour cream. Now look, not, not all fermented foods contain probiotics. Some foods undergo steps that remove them, okay, as with beer or wine, or it makes them inactive, like baking or canning. However, most fermented foods are probiotic foods as well. Now, if there's a potential downside to fermented foods, is that their taste and smell can be very strong, so it's difficult to get kids to eat them or take them. Uh, and they may, may be unpleasant for some adults who might have a bland palate. But the unique flavours and the textures of fermented foods are due in part to the different species of bacteria that are used. Now, on the upside, there are many types of fermented foods from which to choose. So there's a good chance that you can find something that you will or your children will enjoy. The most common fermented foods, like we said before, contain probiotics um, or have probiotics added to them, include yogurt, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, pickles, miso, tempeh, kimchi, sourdough bread, and some cheeses. Now, yogurt, right? Yogurt is considered the most valuable player of all the probiotic foods because it has a flavor and texture that's generally appealing to Western palates. So we can go for yogurt. I mean, the number and type of bacteria species can vary depending on the yogurt brand. And as we said before, always go with uh, non-commercial brands of yogurt. Go with smaller, artisan, handmade, and even homemade yogurts. The probiotic content of yogurt products can range from 90 billion to 500 billion CFU per serving. Now, CFU, that stands for Colony Forming Units, which is how many bacteria are able to divide and form colonies. So... Always look for the words live and active cultures on the label if you're buying something from a store. Now, you know, I guess, how do you use it? Well, yogurt is easy to add to your diet. Besides having it for breakfast or a midday snack, uh, maybe with some almonds or I like to put some coconut shavings over the top of some honey. It's a really nice dessert. Or you can substitute yogurt whenever you use mayonnaise, an egg salad or potato salad or in almost any baking recipe. And also, yogurt can be uh, used as a basis for some sauces, salad dressings, or even marinades. Now, having said all this, probiotics, they have a difficult time getting into the gut. Now, they need to get all the way down from your mouth to the large intestine. But the problem is, the stomach acid can wipe out a lot of them, and as can the small intestine enzymes and other enzymes as the probiotics pass all the way down through the gut. And when they finally get to your large intestine, they're already in a really heavily, I guess, heavily established and heavily, heavily populated environment down. Remember, 300 trillion. So they have a hard time to get established and get a little seat for themselves. And that's why we need pre prebiotics as well. Now, what do prebiotics do and what are they? Well, 
Prebiotics are the food for probiotics. So in other words, probiotics eat prebiotics. Remember the game Pac-Man, where a Pac-Man eats his way through a maze of dots. Well, if you think about this in relation to prebiotics and probiotics within your gut, Pac-Man is the probiotic and the dots are the prebiotics. Okay, makes sense, right? So in a nutshell, prebiotics are a type of fiber. And what's fiber? Well, fiber is the undigestible part of the plant that you eat. So undigestible plant fibers that feed the probiotics are the good bacteria that already live in the large intestine. Okay, The more food or prebiotics that probiotics have to eat, the more efficiently these live bacteria will work and the healthier your gut will be. Now look, you're probably already taking in prebiotics and you may not even know it. And prebiotics naturally exist in many foods and you, you may already consume a lot of them on a regular basis. Since fiber is a source of prebiotics, foods that are high in fiber are also high in prebiotics. Okay, So, so a list of some of the prebiotic foods are, well, garlic, raw garlic, raw onions, some leeks, asparagus, bananas. These are the mainstream, um, I suppose, everyday foods that we eat. But then we have the likes of Jerusalem artichoke, which is one of the best forms of prebiotic foods. Not that easy to get, but if you can get it, it's a fantastic prebiotic food. And then we have dandelion greens. The dandelions that are growing in our gardens, guys, that we're trying to uh, take care of every summer, the green leaves from dandelions are a fantastic addition for a salad, and they are a great source of fiber, and they're free. They're growing in your garden. And then chicory root. Chicory root is another really potent prebiotic food, but again, not really readily available. I get The fact is, guys, we need both probiotics and prebiotics in our diet on a daily basis. I mean, I believe that this will be a fundamental part of the mainstream approach to health and health and well-being over the coming years. And it's going to be a no-brainer when it comes to health, just like exercise. And unfortunately, there's some medical professionals and doctors out there that will flippantly tell you that none of this makes any difference to your health and that there is no evidence to support any of this. And this is what I hear from a lot of patients that have come in when I've prescribed probiotics. Well, guys, it's not about opinions anymore, okay? It's about facts. All of the good evidence and research is there if you care to look, okay? I mean, there's many organizations. Uh, One organization I really like is the American Gut Project. This was founded, I, I think it was maybe 10 years ago, by researchers at the University of California in San Diego School of Medicine. The School of Medicine, okay, and collaborators. Um, it's a crowdsourced global citizen science effort, um, and it publishes some of the largest studies to date on the human microbiome. And if you're interested, you can sign up to the guys, and if you want to get your microbiome tested to see um, what kind of strains that you may be missing or to do some good research, you can actually sign up for a donation. I think they charge maybe $99, which is probably what, 75 euros or something like that. And they do a test. You send it over to them, they do a test, and they send you back the results. The other option is to pay uh, laboratories 500 euros for the very same test. So this is for a small amount of money, and you can test what your makeup of the, your microbiome is. And you can do it via a skin test, okay? You can do it via, via, via a swab in your mouth. You can test your oral bacteria. And as I said, the skin bacteria, but also the most potent one, the common trend right now is to have a stool sample. And the stool sample will tell you what you have in your gut. So some recommendations just before we stop today. 
you need to eat a diverse array of vegetables, and that means all the colours of the rainbow. Okay, the blues and the purples, the reds, the yellows and the greens, all the colours that you can possibly eat. And try then to eat a vegetable each week that you haven't eaten the previous week. So start uh, expanding out your vegetable variety. Start going for the Kohl Rabbi. Start going for the Jerusalem artichoke, for the chicory root, all of those different types of plants and vegetables. Um, some of the dandelion leaves. Start adding in. So uh, I guess the American Gut Project that I've just mentioned showed this to be hugely beneficial. And they showed that the microbiomes that they've studied, and they've studied millions, the ones that were the healthiest and the people that were the healthiest uh, always had a diet that contained a really wide variety of vegetables, 30 or more vegetables, in their diet on a daily basis over a month, let's say. And then, you know, the plant diet was more beneficial than the meat-type diets. And this is because, again, of the antibiotic problem that we had before in the meats, causing antibiotic-resistant strains in the gut, which is throwing off the balance down there. Okay, so another thing that we can do is we can try to have 12 to 14-hour fasts each day. And that means stopping eating at 6 or 7 p.m. Give your gastrointestinal tract time to repair. And that's what it does. When you stop eating, and at night time, your whole gastrointestinal tract, from your mouth to your esophagus, small intestine, large intestine, rebuilds its coating. It gets rid of its dead cells, rebuilds new cells to get you ready for your food the next day. But if you eat past those times in the evening, 6 or 7 o'clock, the body has to say, well, okay, let's stop, let's stop building here. Let's stop repairing. Let's break down this food. So really, stop at 6 or 7 p.m. if you possibly can, and then take up your food again at 8 o'clock in the morning. And then you've done a 12 or 14 hour fast, which is really beneficial to your microbiome. Get in contact with the soil. Have a pet in your home. It's been shown that uh, people with pets in their homes have a more diverse uh, colony of bacteria in their gut than ones that don't have a pet. And if you can't get a pet, well then just get a pet from your next door neighbor. Bring him into the house for an hour. Take on the bacteria from the soil. Take on the bacteria for the pet, from the pets. Don't be washing your hands as much. And I know we have to wash our hands right now because of the because uh, of the pandemic. But you know when we get back to normal, and we will get back to normal, you know don't be as as as, uh, as virulent with the cleaning of the hands and cleaning up the surfaces. Relax a little bit because your your microbiome will benefit. Now remember the probiotic and the prebiotic foods that we've discussed today. Get them into your diet. So that's it for this week, guys. I hope that if you suffer from any of the conditions mentioned here today, uh, that maybe you can try some of the recommendations. Probiotics and prebiotics, they're not the answer to every ailment. And you know, not everybody will have a life-changing experience, but many do. So make sure to tune in to our next episode for more advice on how to live well, live happily, and live long.